Today we get to start a brand new series called God is Here. And by the way, if you're new to North Cross, also in the program you received on the way in, or if you're listening online or on a website, we always post some message notes you can follow along with, and together with that are some group questions you can use with your growth group during the week. Uh, but we get to start a brand new series called God is Here, and the reason for that is because, number one, this is December, we're getting ready for Christmas, and the whole idea is that, yes, uh, when Jesus was born, this was God with us, God is here. But what we're doing in this series, we're not quite to Christmas yet, what we're going to do is look at several individuals before Jesus was even born, and how God appeared to them at critical moments in their life. Before Jesus was even born, people began to realize, wait a minute, God is here. He is with me in this moment, and I am in his presence. And so today what we're going to do is look at the very first human beings who were suddenly realizing God is here, and as it turns out, they were also the first human beings. We're going to talk about Adam and Eve and how they were with God in the garden, and this was the first time in brief human history how God is here was perceived to be a bad thing. So we're going to get into that in just a little bit. But first of all, I want to talk about these three words. God is here. When I tell someone that, first of all, we assume nothing about the people who, who come here on Sunday mornings or listen online. What I believe for, for most people when they hear those three words, at least the people in our audience, the, th the thing you come up with, first of all, is this sense of joy and peace, joy and comfort. God is here is good news for us because we kind of know a little bit about him. And so the prevailing thought is, okay, God is here. This should bring us joy. This should bring us comfort. And that's kind of the, the standard. But what I also know about me and about all of you is that there are some things that can get in the way of that joy and comfort. And in fact, when we look at a broader survey of, of humankind, we see that not everyone reacts and perceives those words, God is here with joy and comfort. Sometimes when we hear those three words, God is here, it can lead us to a reaction of guilt and shame to the point where I'm not okay with God being here just yet. It's, it's, I think this is more of a guy thing, but it's kind of like, yeah, I should probably go to the doctor, but I'm not quite ready to go to the doctor because I know I need to change my diet and eat better and exercise. And once I do that, then I'll go to the doctor. I, th I think we have that little bit of a complex with God too. Or maybe dentist is a better thing. You know, we all floss the day before we go to the dentist. And who knows, you know, other than that. But when it comes to the presence of God, maybe part of you says, I'm not quite ready yet. Let me clean up my life. And some, some of you felt this way with church too. I, I don't know if I'm really a church person. I need to fix up, clean up, change who I am, and then maybe I'll fit in. So there can be this guilt and this shame associated with those three words. God is here. But then there's also a more challenging one. This, again, all of these apply to all of us in, in at least a little bit of a way. But this third one is probably the trickiest. For some people, God is here brings accusation and doubt. Some people aren't ready to believe in God because they look at all the bad things or the suffering or the evil in this world and they say, how could there be a God, a good God, a powerful God, a loving God, if all of this is still here? I'm, if, if he is here, I'm going to have a word with him. Some of us, if, if we maybe were not quite that extreme, we're followers of Jesus. We believe he's a savior, but 
we just have doubts. Why did he allow that bad thing to happen to you? Why won't he give you some relief? You're doing everything according to his rules as best you can, but his rules just aren't giving you any results. And so when you think God is here, you think, I've got some accusations, I've got some questions, we've got some things to work out. And these three things, they all fit into one category, really. You see, if God is here, if God is here, every one of us automatically thinks of some sort of a confrontation. Uh, The first one, joy and comfort, we'll talk about this towards the end, but God is confronting something and that gives you joy and peace. The second one, the reason we feel guilt and shame is because we feel like God is confronting us and we're not ready for that. The third thing, you're actually the one confronting God with your accusations or your doubts. All of these things deal with confrontation. And in fact, the one thing we're going to see happen today as we look at the first human beings who were in the presence of God, it's best summarized by that one word, confrontation. Now, just real quick. I like to put you guys on the spot sometimes. How many of you are... you? you you actually enjoy confrontation a little bit. Uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you do, could you just say, we need to talk, we need to talk? Those are the, your four favorite words, right? Can you say that with me? Ready? We need to... Wow, some, so we're, we're kind of sadistic in here. So some of you really like this, you know, confronting people. And, and here's the thing. We all know that it's better to confront up at the beginning than to let it simmer and let it get worse. Better to confront right away. And here's what we're going to see today. You see, we can't point to God walking in a garden like Adam and Eve could, and we can't have that confrontation like they did. But we receive the benefit of their confrontation. You don't have to wait to have this confrontation with God. If you feel shame and guilt, if you feel accusation or doubt, you don't have to wait. Today is your invitation to find that peace and that comfort that can come along with God is here. But the first thing to know is this. If God is here, we should be ready for confrontation. We should be prepared for it. And this is going to take us back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve had the first confrontation with God. And what we see from their story is that it resolves all these things that we just listed. Do you want more peace and joy from God is here? Do you want to get rid of the guilt and shame? Do you want to part with your anger against God? This section helps to address all three of those things. And here's the thing about Genesis chapter 3. It's an amazing chapter of the Bible. In fact, Genesis chapters 2 and 3, if you understand those two chapters, it clarifies the rest of the Bible. You can understand all of it if you understand those two correctly. So the reason I say that is because we don't have time today to dig into all of Genesis 3 like I would like to. I want to get you out of here before Wednesday evening. So what we're going to do is we're going to hit some of the highlights, and I'm going to do my best to fill in what you need to know up to this point. And here's where we start, in Genesis chapter 3. We have the first human beings walking on the earth, and here's how they were created. They were created in the image of God, which means one thing for sure and maybe a second thing I'm not too sure about. The one thing I'm sure about is that they were created sinless, holy, without failure, without failings. They were in the image of God, not in a physical sense, but in an ethical and moral sense. They were flawless. They were perfect. That's the one thing I'm sure of. The second thing I'm not sure of is that Adam might have looked like David Hasselhoff. 
I'm not sure about that piece. I just lost the younger generation on that reference. <laughs> I'll teach them on Wednesday nights. Uh, they were created in the image of God. They were perfect and holy. And here's the other thing about being in the image of God. One of God's primary characteristics is that God is love. And so as he created the first human beings, they were created with perfect love. This perfect demonstration of expressing love and commitment and priority to one another and back to God. Now, here's where we get into a little bit of a dicey situation. You see, one of the main things people have against Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 is that God made a decision that basically put us where we're at today. Um, I'll back up a little bit. God placed Adam and Eve into the best buffet this world has ever had. Garden of Eden was designed to be a place where they didn't have to work. It was going to be a joy to live there. All they had to do, the hardest part of living in this Garden of Eden, is they had to walk around all the plants and all the trees, and they had to decide what to eat today. That was the hardest part of living there. But then there was this catch, and this is what people get angry about. I, I get it. The catch was God placed one tree in the middle, and he told them, don't eat that one. Now, why would he do that? Wouldn't God know that they would eat it, touch it, consume it, and they would bring sin and death into the world? So why create that tree in the first place? As Genesis describes that tree, it gives a name to it. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Long story short, what makes the tree special isn't how God created it. What made it special was the command God placed over it. Do not eat of it. If you eat of it, you will have a knowledge of things you don't want to know. Which brings up the question, well, why did God create it in the first place if he knew this would lead to the fall into sin and death and all these bad things entering the world? Well, here's the thing. They were created in the image of God. They were created with perfect love. And as if, you're, if, if you know computers or robots, you know this. A computer or a robot cannot love you. It can make you upset. It can make you use bad words sometimes. But it cannot love you. It cannot demonstrate love because love requires a choice. Love requires a choice. And here's what God did for Adam and Eve. It's so simple, so simple. Dozens, maybe hundreds of trees surrounding this garden. God said, here is your buffet. Enjoy it. I just have one simple thing that will demonstrate your love and honor and prioritization of me. There's one tree I don't want you to eat from. And every day as you pick which fruit to eat, when you don't pick that one, that will show honor and love for me. Love requires a choice. And God gave them an opportunity to show love. But this was also an opportunity that the evil one decided to prance on. As we get into Genesis 3, again, we don't have time to get into all the details, but verses 1 through 5 uh, details how the devil in the form of a serpent started talking to Eve. And if you're in a growth group, you can read through that part and talk about it. We don't have time to today. But long story short, the, um, the devil tempts Eve with this thought. He's like, did God tell you not to eat any, from any tree in the garden? Eve said, no, it's just this one tree we can't eat from. And then the devil said, well, why not? And basically, he sowed in her this thought that God did not have her best interests in mind. God is holding you back from all you could be. There's this knowledge of good and evil. What is evil? You don't know. It's this great thing. You should try it. There's this knowledge that you don't have. God is holding back. And so this 
was a shortcut to get something that God did not want any of us to have. And so here's what happened. Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was three things, good for food and pleasing to the eye, and earlier in Genesis, it describes all the trees in the garden this way. They were all good for food and pleasing to the eye. But this one was also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And so here they are, husband and wife, in this perfect buffet of the Garden of Eden. And with this one act and this one decision, everything changed. And as this account is recorded for us, it's interesting. The first thing that it notes changed. Verse 7 says this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They see things they didn't even notice before. And they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, books have been written about this. Why did they just now realize that they were naked? Well, here's, here's the thing. When, when you have that sinful nature, it makes you extremely inward-focused towards yourself. Like, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world around you. For example, have you ever introduced yourself to someone and you're getting to know them? Hey, how are you? My name is, and their name is. And by the end of the conversation, you're like, wait a minute, what's their name? And then the next time you meet them, it's this awkward thing because you know you don't remember their name. Maybe that's more of a brain thing, but it's just one small little sliver of this effect of sinfulness. We naturally just gravitate towards this inward focus. How am I being perceived? Are they remembering me? Who am I? And so as Adam and Eve fall into this sin and they invent sin, they become so self-focused that they're now aware of the differences between male and female to the point of embarrassment. Before this, the differences brought them together, but now the differences have made them separated. And this plays out even more with God. Perhaps in this moment, as they're navigating male and female and what this all means and having to cover themselves, they're wondering, why did God make us this way? Why are we embarrassed? And here's how it plays out in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, in his garden, in the cool of the day. Now, some, sometimes I talk about how God created the world, and you know, he, the creator has to be independent of his creation. You can't paint a painting if you're part of the painting. God exists independently of space, matter, and time. He has to put it all together. But what you see in Genesis is this amazing truth. God created this universe and God created this earth to be a suitable place for him to be. God dwelled with them in a very real way. And maybe later in the series, we'll talk about the other end of this. At the end, we'll have what they lost. God will dwell among us again. But just amazing that God created this world in in an appropriate way for him to be part of it. God was there. And what does it sound like when God's walking through the garden? I'm not entirely sure. For some reason, I think Monty Python and the huge foot from heaven that just stomps around. But I'm sure that's not it. But they heard God walking in the garden. It's like he was there. God is here. But for the first time ever, God is here was a bad thing. They, they heard the Lord God in the, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, in the afternoon, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of, get this, 
and among the trees that God himself planted. And you and I have to look back at that and say, that was pretty foolish, that was pretty dumb. Why try to hide behind the things that God himself placed there? But isn't that what you and I still do to this day? When you don't want that confrontation because you feel guilty or because you feel angry, what is it that you hide behind? What is it you distract yourself with? Isn't it kind of foolish to think about the things that we distract ourselves with in this world just when we can't even think about the way of how God might confront us? And what God does with Adam, I pray he does with you. God doesn't just point him out and (laughs) tell him how awful he is. Look at how God addresses Adam when he's hiding in shame. Hiding in shame. God does this. The Lord God called to the man. Where are you? Where did you go? I don't see you in this beautiful garden, in this beautiful buffet that I built for you. Where did you go? Where are you? And that question forced Adam to internalize and then vocalize the absurdity of what he was doing. Fig leaves behind a tree. So Adam, in shame, he answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid, first time ever, someone was afraid in the presence of God. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He expressed (laughs) what he was feeling. And for Adam, this must have been something entirely new. What is this thing I'm feeling? What is this shame that I have? This wasn't here before. I don't like it. I want to get rid of it. But instead of confronting it, Adam tried to hide from it. Are you trying to hide? What are you hiding behind? If you think about it, it can be pretty silly, but God invites you to say, God, I've been hiding for a while, but here I am. Verse 11, God said, who told you? Hold on a minute. This isn't something that you'd come up with on your own because by nature, you're perfect. You have perfect love. You're focused on me and me alone. Who told you to look inward? Who told you that you were naked? Um, and before I share this next part, there, there's this custom, not custom, there's this order of doing things over in Japan for their train stations where they have very low rates of accidents when it comes to their conductors and their platforms and how people get, get in and out and very low rate of accidents because they practice what's called the point and call method. Uh, for us, we have our, you know, the regulations, the manuals to follow, the checklists. Rather than having a checklist, they point and call. Platform clear, engine on, doors closed. They point at it and then they declare it what it is. And in this moment, God is pointing at the tree. Fruit is gone. Adam, did you eat from the tree I told you not to? Have you replaced your love for me with something else? In Genesis 3.12, the man said, I accept full responsibility for my actions. Now, some of you who know the Bible know that's not true. (laughs) That's what he should have said. I mean, come on, Adam. Be a man. Own up. Here's what he really said. The man said, the woman you placed here with me That part I'm not making up. This is what he actually said. The woman you placed here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and and I I ate it. 
Now, there's a lot of things wrong with that, but before we get there, love requires a choice. The simple choice for them was to abstain from eating this fruit, to honor God in that way. And maybe one of the best ways to illustrate this, isn't it, isn't it cool in modern, even in modern days, the cool thing about marriage is that both of you make a choice. Like, I choose you. And of all the, all the, out of all the people in the world, that choice exhibits and demonstrates love. And, you know, I had a lot of options when, when it came to, you know, people to ma- marriage and stuff. I mean, I could have married Amy. I could have stayed single. But it's, it's that choice, that choice that is required for love. And it's in this moment that God is pointing this out. One thing, one simple choice you could have made to demonstrate your love and you decided not to. And Adam says, I know that hurts. Sometimes the choices we make betray others and demonstrate a lot of selfishness. And Adam says, "Mm, it's the woman. Everything was fine until she showed up. I mean, I was naming the animals. I was walking around and enjoying the garden. And then this woman you put here with me, everything just went, you know where. Everything went bad. And so in this moment, Adam is blaming Eve. He's blaming God himself. And maybe just to pause there for a second, That's something we tend to do also. We blame the people around us, or maybe even, well, God, you're the one who made me this way. God, you're the one who gave me these circumstances. You're the one who gave me this illness. You're the one who gave me this inheritance. Why did you give it to me if you knew it was going to end up this way? We shift the blame elsewhere. And to see a role model of what we should do, let's look at what Eve said. So uh, Lord God said to the woman, what is it you've done? And the woman said, it was all my fault. I'm kidding. If you know the Bible, that's not what she said. She said, the serpent, shift the blame that way. The serpent deceived me, and so I ate it. And it just keeps going down and down the line, shifting the blame to someone else. We know this by nature. I I see this as a parent. I did not teach my kids this, but when I confront one of my kids and I tell them, why did you hit your brother? They always say, but he... Whatever, fill in the blank. But he did this, but he did that. It's always shifting the blame. Adam and Eve taught us that. When we feel guilt and shame before God, the best thing, the only thing we have the power to do is try to shift the blame to someone else. And the most ugly version is to shift blame back to God himself. We know this. We try this. It doesn't work, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Number two on your sheet, the only way to escape guilt is to shift the blame. Shift the blame. We know this. We know this. But here's the problem. The person who is guilty has no authority to move the guilt or the blame somewhere else. They don't have the power. They don't have the capability. As much as Adam and Eve wanted to shift the blame elsewhere, they were still guilty. They were still guilty. The only hope is if the one before whom you're guilty decides to take the blame and move it somewhere else. That's exactly what we see. Genesis 3.15, here's the good news. Here's the first promise of the Savior that you see recorded. And it says, God was present with Adam and Eve in that garden. So the Lord God said to the serpent, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman. Devil, you tried to make your own little family here. You think this world is yours? You think these people will belong to you forever? No, they will not love you. There will be conflict. There will be conflict between you. There will be confrontation. They will recognize your lies and your deceit. They will not be part of you. I'll put enmity between you, and here's how, between your offspring and hers. Uh, And not like plural, many offspring, but God was promising there will be one offspring through this woman that will be the hero of these people. He He will face you in conflict. And the result will be this. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. He will crush your head destroy you, and the best thing that you'll be able to do is a momentary blow. You will, cru- you will strike his heel. And it's in this moment we see God in this amazing promise that he declared to Adam and Eve, which he affirms before you today also. His plan from the beginning was to say, Adam and Eve, I see how you're shifting the blame around. That's cute and all, but you can't do that. Only I can. And today I declare that one of your offspring will fulfill this promise today to take the blame which you incurred today and to be considered guilty for it for you. That was God's plan and promise. So here's what we see happen in the garden. If you are hiding from God because of your game, game, because of of your your, uh, guilt, because of your shame, God has taken that blame and he has shifted it for you. He put it on Jesus for you. Jesus died for you. He rose again for you. The guilt is gone. God is here. Is a good thing. But what about all the bad things? If God is here, and if that's a good thing, what about all the bad things? So once he's addressed the big issue, he pointed the, the finger at the big uh, guilt that had gone on, and now that God has addressed that, he then in turn addresses Eve, and he addresses Adam, and he says, because of this, there will be consequences. He turns to Eve. We'll go through this quickly. He turns to the woman, and he says, you know how I just promised that through your offspring there will be deliverance? Through your delivery, there will be great pain. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Thank you, Eve. That's her gift to all of you women. And so there was this this hope, but also this trouble. They knew that a savior would one day come, but they also knew with every delivery, with every delivery, with every delivery, it would be so painful, so painful. But that was their only hope. Their hope was through pain. Um, Then he turns to Adam. He says, you're not off the hook. Adam, because you listened to your wife, rookie mistake. Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. No more Garden of Eden for you. You're kicked out. Go work the ground. In order to survive, you will have to sacrifice through sweat, through blood. Just to survive will be painful. He goes on. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since, Adam, I took you up from it. And this next part is so powerful and also so poetic. God ends with this. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. 
Your life will be one of pain and suffering, living moment to moment, paycheck to paycheck, day to day, trying to, earn, try, trying to make enough food, trying to make enough just to survive. And your only source of relief is that someday you'll die and you'll be nothing but dust once again. And this is kind of the bleak existence. And the book of Ecclesiastes in the, in the Old Testament does an amazing job of you know, pouring into to the troubles and the struggles of life. But this is what he was very upfront with, with Adam and Eve. He told Adam and Eve, look, your life is going to be one of pain, one of suffering, and one of a lot of work, but this is better than the alternative. Standing before Adam and Eve, he had this choice. Here, you guys just ruined my perfect creation. I can't live with you anymore like I hoped I could. You created sin and death. So what could God have done? Well, one option, just condemn Adam and Eve forever out of his existence and start over. Brand new creation. Let's try this again. New garden, new people. Uh, we'll ma- I'm not sure what he would name them, uh, but new people to, to inhabit this world and let's, let's have another go at it. But... God said to Adam and Eve, what would be better for you is option B. The option where you go through a life of pain and struggle and sorrow and sickness and eventually death so that I don't have to condemn you. His plan was to redeem them, to reclaim them. And as we zoom out, now we look in the modern day world and the pain and suffering that God predicted for Adam and Eve was not just for Adam and Eve. From today's perspective, now there's billions more people with this same life. We're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. The same pains, the same toils, the same sufferings, the same inevitability of death. But still, God says, this is better than the alternative. Better to endure the suffering than to be condemned forever. And then finally, here's the miracle of this all. From, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, when God was here walking in the garden, here's the promise he made. Not only will you, Adam and Eve, endure pain, not only will your offspring endure pain, but God said, I myself will endure it with you. In the fulfillment of what we see, Jesus, God himself entered into the suffering so that he could take something out of it. Here's how I phrase it for number three. God permitted brokenness to continue in this world so that God himself could enter the brokenness and reclaim something from it, something he loved more than anything else. You, the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not be condemned, would not perish, but rather would have eternal life. So yeah, there's going to be moments in life where you get angry. You see things in your life and you say, God, if you're here, why are, the, why are there all these troubles? And why is there all of this pain? And God's answer is the same. He did not release you or abandon you to all the brokenness, but he entered into it deeper than you and I will ever have to go. Condemnation, death. 
And the good news is, as we know the end of the story, Christmas isn't just that the Son of God entered this world, but we know that he came here with a mission, with a purpose. Yes, he died for our sins, but he rose again to declare that death no longer has power over us. Though to dust we will return, we will live with God. With, we will see him face to face. So as, as we close today, I want to close with the same thought we started with. If God is here, yes, there will be confrontation. We should be ready for confrontation. But the one thing I hope you take away is that when you think God is here, think about what he confronts for you. As he entered the trouble and suffering of this world, he confronted the punishment for sin. He confronted the pain of death. He confronted that for you so that in this moment, when you think God is here, you can say to yourself, because of that, I have joy and I have peace. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I know that when we get into how we think about being in your presence, we can have a number of different reactions and responses. Some of us just came in here already feeling joy and peace. Some of us are kind of hiding or cowering with some shame or guilt, and some of us have honest questions about your goodness and how evil and wickedness and hardships can be a part of your good plan. And we'll continue to struggle with all those things as long as we live in this world. But I pray that as we simply look back to our first parents, Adam and Eve, hiding in the garden, your simple question brought them back in. Where are you? And your love for them is the same love you have for us. Help us this season throughout our lives to see the joy and the peace of knowing that you are here. In Jesus' name, amen.